morning. I got to tell you that I normally sit right back there, but I sat here today, and you guys sound good. That is very, very powerful. Um, a special welcome to our guest this morning. If this is the first or second time you've been here, I know it's no small thing to walk into a church the first time, but you're among friends today, and we really look forward to worshiping with you. My name is Greg Clay. I'm a member here at Summit. Uh, I'm not the guy that normally does that. That would be Jamie Nettles. One of the things that attracted Ashley and I to this church was the preaching. And i got to tell you that Jamie has said some things over the last few years that have had a powerful impact on me and my family, and we're changed. But it's not just Jamie here. It's any number of men. Joey, Jason, Joel, and Sean all have said things to me, have preached things that have meant so much to me over the last four years. I think it's a... I think it's a sign of God's blessing whenever he raises up a number of men to preach, and we have that here. And I believe that that is one of the, the real strengths of this church, is that the men who love Jesus, they study, they pray, and they deliver a very powerful message every Sunday. And I'm thankful to God for that. We're in the second week on a series in Revelation specifically concentrating on the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3. And what we're going to be doing is going through each one of these churches, and we're going to be looking in, looking for a couple of things. One is, what does Jesus love about the church? What does he criticize about the church? Why would Jesus remove his lampstand or his presence from a church? What does he promise a church? And as a body, I think this is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and ask Jesus, what would you have us do? Last week, Jamie went through Revelation 2, the first seven verses, and he talked about the church at Ephesus. And what he said was that Jesus encouraged this church, but at the same time, he gave them a warning, and that is, do not leave your first love. In other words, I don't care if you have head knowledge, I don't care if you have theology, If you don't have in your heart a love for me or my people, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And then he gave them a warning that he would remove their lampstand. So with that being said, we go to the church at Smyrna. And the next slide, Jamie went over this last week. Uh, The book of Revelation was a letter that was written to the, the seven churches that you see in the modern country of Turkey. And John wrote this letter on the Isle of Patmos, And the letter would travel to Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. Each one of the churches would read the letter. They would read specifically what was written about them, but they would read about what was written to all the other churches. And today we're going to talk about Smyrna. And the next slide is the city of Smyrna as it exists today. Technically, it's called Izmir, Turkey. And as you can see, it's it's a harbor town. It's a very big city. has mountains surrounding it. And uh, it's quite lovely. You know, I found this picture. The thoughts went through my mind. I wonder if there are any direct descendants from the church at Smyrna that still exist today. In other words, Christians that were in Smyrna, do they have anybody that's left? I don't know the answer to that. But I did come across a real interesting fact. In 1914, 20% of the, of the people in Turkey were Christians. In other words, for every 1,000 people... 200 were Christians. You know what it is in 2018? 
0.2%. For every 1,000 people, two are Christians. What happened? Persecution happened. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 9. Before we go here, let's, let's pray. Holy Father, as we open your word, I just pray that you just overwhelm us with your spirit. Help us to see truth. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us here at Summit Crossing to see exactly what you would have us see today. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What an introduction. And Stephen read this earlier. I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. I was the one who died for your sin, and I have risen so that you may have life. I am alive. And because of this, you who suffer are rich beyond measure. I can only imagine being at the church at Smyrna, and this letter is read to you the very first time, the thoughts that are going through your mind, that Jesus, the Lord of this universe, is speaking directly to me, and then he knows exactly what I am enduring. So what is going on in Smyrna, and why is the church there suffering? Well, like many Roman colonies, Smyrna had become wealthy through trade. Its port was very important, religion, industry, and something called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. The Romans valued stability and order, and because of this, the economy in Smyrna was flourishing. In fact, Smyrna vied with the city of Ephesus for the title of First City of Asia. So... Why are the Christians in Smyrna poor when everyone around them is wealthy? Well, that's going to be the points today. We're going to talk about persecution by religion, persecution by the world, and the great promise that's in these verses, the crown of life. Verse 9 says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You know, sometimes religious people can persecute the church. Have you or your church ever been lied about or slandered? It's tough. Many of the Christians in Smyrna were Jewish believers, and they were being accused by the leaders in the synagogue of many things. One, that the Christians were worshiping a man who was simply a man, certainly not the Christ, that Christians are a false witness of God, and also that horrible things were going on in this church, cannibalism, love feasts, immorality, disloyalty to family, disloyalty to synagogue, disloyalty to Rome, and the list went on and on and on. You see, the Jewish leaders had a problem. It's the same problem they had when Jesus was teaching on the earth. They had a problem that many of their people were coming to Christ. They were flocking to Christ. In Smyrna and in Jesus' day, the leaders were here, their people saying things like this. He speaks with power and authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. He has healed the sick, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the blind see, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached. And the people of Jesus' day were astonished, and they said, we've never seen anything like this. And he does all things well. And to the Jewish leadership in both Israel and Smyrna, 
Jesus was not what they expected or wanted in a Messiah. He was a Sabbath breaker. He was a friend of sinners. And he threatened all they stood for. Their whole world was being rolled. Everything they stood for was going away. At the heart of the slander, what they were saying was that Jesus was not the Christ, that Jesus was not God incarnate, and anyone who claimed that, that Jesus was God, was anathema. On top of that, the leaders of the synagogue were calling out Gentile Christians. They were lying about us. They were saying that these people are not following Roman law. And they were naming names and telling the Romans exactly who we were. They were slandering Christians. So, who was the author of this slander? Was it the leaders of the synagogue? No. No, the father of lies. In John chapter 8, and John chapter 8 is an extraordinary passage where you see Jesus confronting the leaders of this day. And he looks directly in their eyes and he says, can you imagine saying this to someone? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The author of this slander against Christians was our enemy, Satan. And this law, this slander led to the poverty of the Christians in Smyrna. For Jewish believers, you were kicked out of the synagogue, And everyone that you knew turned against you. Husband against wife, brother against brother, friend against friend. If you had a business, no one would buy from you. If you're a tradesman, nobody would hire you. You lost everything. The truth is, this should be expected. John, in chapter 16 in the Upper Room Discourse, says, in the first four verses, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. For this reason, the religious establishment was at war with the Christian church, and yet To this, Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. (laughs) Rich? How could he say that? You are rich because you have endured this slander and you have not wavered. You are rich because you have me. You have Jesus Christ. And yes, the slander, this lie continues today. At the mention of Jesus, you're going to hear people say things like this. He was just a man. Or he was a gifted teacher, a healer, a prophet, but he certainly wasn't God. Or more subtly and yet more dangerous, he was a God, but he was not God incarnate. Also, many people, even religious people, will slander us today. And what they will say is, well, they'll question our morality The question of motives, that we're bad for society, that we have a terrible history, that we're hateful and intolerant. Y'all heard that one? We're hateful, right, and intolerant, and that we need to keep our mouths shut. Sometimes you can almost feel the rage that's building against us as a church. But a reminder, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? 
Our battle is against our enemy. And our enemy is never people. When we engage people who just don't believe, and they're very, and they're very vocal about it, we need to remember certain things about them. When I'm talking to that person, I'm talking to a person that's made in God's image. I'm talking to a person that God has seared deep in their conscience that there is good and evil, that deep down in their heart they know that there's something terribly wrong with this world, and that this is not the way this was supposed to be. But even worse, they know that there's, ter- there's something terribly wrong with themselves. And that one day, they're going to go before an almighty God, and they're going to have to get an account of their life. We're also talking to people that have inside them an innate need to worship God, and they just don't know how to. We're talking to this person. We're talking to someone who needs the gospel. They need Jesus. They need to be cleansed of their sins so they don't have this burden of sin on them. We're also, we're also talking to someone who one day may be our brother or sister in Christ. Second point, worldly persecution. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna this, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So what does Jesus mean by this? What does he mean by 10 days of tribulation? Well, what, what Jesus is talking about are 10 Roman emperors. From Domitian to Julian, from the time of the writing of this letter until 325 AD, the, there were 10 emperors that were monsters towards Christianity. Now, this was definitely a time of testing for the church. In fact, it is believed that during these 200 years that between 2 to 5 million Christians, listen to that, 2 to 5 million Christians will lose their life for their faith. So why did Rome hate Christians? Why did they hate us? There was a couple of big reasons. One of those was that Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. When, when Rome would conquer a land, they were typically very tolerant of the religions and the lands that they conquered, except for very few exceptions, what they would ask the people to do is to burn incense and proclaim emperor's God one time a year. If you did this, you were free to worship in any way that you wanted to. And, of course, Christians refused to do this, and this infuriated Rome. Because of this, Romans started blaming Christians for every calamity that befell them. If Rome burns, it's the Christian's fault. If the crops fell, if the rivers flood, the, Romans, the Roman gods were showing their wrath against Rome because of the Christians. If the economy fell, it was our fault. Everything that you can imagine was laid at the feet of Christians. We became the scapegoat of the Roman Empire. In, Rome, in Rome's eyes, the worst, however, was that Christians were evangelists. They had a zeal. We have a zeal to proclaim Christ to everyone, to call on men and women to repent and to follow him. Rome's worst fears were coming true, that the world was being turned upside down and that more and more Romans were moving to Christ. The second reason that Rome hated Christianity was their lifestyle. 
Their lifestyle produced wrath. Living for Christ, then as today, sets you apart. Christians would not produce or consume goods that were made for Roman worship. And this upset the economy in Smyrna and in Ephesus. That Christians' views on women and children and slaves was far outside the norm. They were radical. First shall be last. The meek shall inherit the earth. Everyone has worth. What is happening at these love feasts? Gross immorality? Christians were simply being Christians, living a life in the world, but not of the world. At the heart of it, most Romans were religious on the outside, but their religion meant nothing to them on the inside. In practice, Rome was a secular society. Romans saw Christians as a people of faith, and their faith meant something to them. And any time you deal with a secular society and they see a people of faith, they always come to the same conclusion, that we're dealing with religious fanatics. They came to see Christians as cancer that would weaken Rome. And what do you do to cancer? What do you do to cancer? You kill it. You cut it out. This should be no surprise, for Jesus states in Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Moving to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, listen to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Which leads us to one of the early great Christian leaders, and his name was Polycarp. Polycarp was a pastor at the church in Smyrna. Polycarp, if you've ever heard of him, was a a direct disciple of John the Apostle. So he learned Christ directly at the feet of uh, the man who wrote this book. Now, when you, you can actually go back and read some of Polycarp's writing. When you read them, you really get a sense of the awe and wonder that the early church had of Christ. It's the same awe that we have today. But we're hearing this from a man who directly learned from... Listen, John actually got to see Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his crucifixions, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And this had an impact on Polycarp. The Roman government took note of Polycarp because of his teachings that that Jesus was God and the Roman gods were not God at all. So if you're a Roman official or the proconsul in Smyrna, this is what you saw. You saw the growth of the church in Smyrna. And you see the catalyst for this group is that man, Polycarp. You saw an atheist. The irony is, is that Rome considered Christians atheists because we would not, we would not recognize the Roman gods. You would see, you would see the Christians upsetting the economy in Smyrna. And you would see the Christian church as a disruptor where Rome valued stability and order above all else. You saw an enemy. So. As a Roman, 
you did what Romans always do. And that is you arrest a leader, you conduct a trial, and then you execute the leader so that you can instill terror among all of his followers. And this is, that is exactly what they did. How Polycarp endured his trials kind of serves as a microcosm for all of us and how or what we will do when we encounter persecution. The questions we ask ourselves. Do I keep my mouth shut? Do I placate the authorities at the expense of my faith? This is how Polycarp answered those questions. And this is an eyewitness account. As Polycarp was being led to his execution, not even the soldier's captain wished to see Polycarp die. On the brief journey to the city, he pled with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and sacrifice and save your life? But Polycarp was adamant that for him only Christ Jesus was Lord. He entered the arena. The proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. Eighty and six years have I served him, said Polycarp, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning, and Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in judgment to come and the everlasting punishment. So why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And he remained unmoved. So there he died for Christ. So if you're the Roman proconsul, what you're saying to yourself is, that's it. Without their leader, the Christian church would fold. And that would be the same mistake that Roman officials would make for the next 200 years. The more they persecuted the church, the more the church grew. The more they persecuted the church, the more the church grew. But why? I think the answer lay in the crowd that witnessed Polycarp's death, the Christians that were there. The Christians that were there were no different than you and I. They had they the same spirit that we did. And I know that they were horrified when they saw their friend, their brother, their pastor die before their eyes. But what they, what they really saw was a man that met his death with no fear. And they also saw a man that not only believed in Jesus, he believed Jesus. And he believed the promise that Jesus gave the church at Smyrna, that you would, that you would receive the crown of life. A lot of people would say that after that, that the church at Smyrna gained a measure of courage. It wasn't courage at all that they gained. It was faith. It was faith. And the reason they gained faith was that they could say it's all true. <laughs> I saw, I saw my eyes. It's all true. That he met his death and he believed and that Jesus was with him. He was with him. Persecution increased the faith of the early church in a couple of ways. One of those, it magnified one of the church's early strengths, great strength, and that was the love that men and women had for each other. No one suffered alone. No one was persecuted alone. You had brothers and sisters in Christ who loved you. In fact, the love that Christians showed towards one another and others was one of the reasons that so many Romans came to Christ. They saw the love that we had for each other. But more importantly, 
persecution or suffering has a way of focusing our attention. It helps us to sort out what's important and what's not. They, they came to see this life as a, a pilgrimage or a journey and that a persecuted Christian would receive the great promise, and that was the crown of life. That the goal of this life was not wealth or comfort or good health. The goal of this life was to be with Jesus. The story of the persecution of the church does not end with Rome. Uh, persecution has come in waves on the church for the last 2,000 years. In fact, today, today, the church is undergoing a, a season of persecutions in countries and regions like China, North Korea, North Africa, the Middle East, Afghanistan. The last 125 years have been a, a new age of persecution for Christ's church. From the Armenian genocide... The Armenian Genocide happened in Turkey, in and around Turkey. In 1914 to 1918, a million Christians lost their lives in Turkey. And that's one of the reasons that so many Christians have left that great country. I got going and I got lost. I'm sorry. Okay. The, um, the church has had great martyrs produced over the last hundred years, men like uh, Eric Little, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott. And Jesus declares to them like he declares to us, I know your poverty, but you're rich. So what about today? What about trials in Limestone County? How does this passage impact us? Will we be persecuted? Will we be persecuted? I don't know, but I definitely can see some changes in how the culture is viewing us. And I think a lot of folks are coming to the conclusion that evangelical Christians are, um, are intolerant and hateful and that uh, their views on us are changing. Now, where this is headed, I don't know. But I do know this, that whether we're persecuted or not, every one of us, everybody sitting in here is going to go various trials and tribulations. You're at the doctor's office, and he says, there's no easy way to put this. You have, uh, you're waiting at the gate of, of, your, of your yard, and you're waiting for your prodigal child to come home. You walk into a, your boss's office, and there's an HR pr- person present, and he says, we no longer need your services. Ten years ago, this is what my life looked like. I had four children. Uh, the oldest was in his second semester at college. The youngest was nine years old. I was in my late 40s, and my wife was 45. On February 4th, 2008, 10 years ago today, I got a call from my wife. And the reason I remember today is because on February 5th, 2008, an EF4 tornado hit Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, completely destroyed that campus. And the very first dorm it hit was the dorm that my son was in. The day before that, February, February 4th, I get a call from my wife, and she says, Greg, are you standing up? I take my call standing up a lot. I said, uh, yes. And she said, uh, 
I think you better sit down. You ever get a call like that? I sat down and actually said, Greg, we're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. Have you ever uh, cried? Yeah. You ever cried for joy and fear at the same time? That's exactly what we did. Whenever your children start leaving your home, you start realizing what a wonderful, wonderful time you had. And that the time that you have with your children is so short. And what Ashley was telling me was that we get to do this again, that we get to have another child. And this child, maybe we won't be so uptight. (laughs) And that we can actually enjoy the time that we have with this child. And that's exactly what we knew. But on the other hand, I knew how hard it was going to be on Ashley. And it was. It was an extremely difficult pregnancy. And during that time, we were trying to help our son David get his life back in order. He lost everything in the tornado. And it was a very tough season for us. But the day came for our baby to be born. And when she was born, the doctor handed me this, this beautiful baby girl. And I look over, and the doctors are panicking over Ashley. And I'm, this thought's going through my mind. Am I about to lose my wife? And as she was recovering, I've never seen anybody go through what she went through. On the one hand, <laughs> we got Anna. And if you ever met Anna, you know what that means. She's a wonderful, fun girl. She is the unclay, and she's neat to be around. But on the other hand, I watch my wife suffer. You know, so often in the Christian life, our joy is mixed with suffering. And sometimes I wonder if we can't have one without the other. And I know that if you've been a Christian any amount of time, that you have a story just like that. Only the details are different. And that what you learn is that when you're going through the tough times, that Jesus is always with us. That the night is dark, but joy comes in the morning. I like to go over three conclusions to this on how trials and sufferings increase faith. In other words, how do they help us today? When we undergo trials and tribulations, we learn that we are not alone, that Christ is with us. Have you ever worried about how you would endure? Will I say the right thing? Will I act in a godly way? Will God actually be there for me? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verses 19 through 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious on how you're about to speak or what you're about to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction, and with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's, 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 that's powerful. I've seen many times in my life where Jesus has been with those who are suffering. 
we don't have to worry about how we're going to endure. It's not going to be about us anyway. You see this throughout Christian history as Christians have joyfully been martyred. I've seen this in my own life as I've watched ordinary Christians go through crisis and God is with them. And I suspect that you have seen God work during your trials and that whenever you're going through that, you know that he is real. The second reason on how trials and sufferings increase our faith is that when we undergo trials and tribulations, we will never be alone. We have the church. More directly, we have each other. God has assembled us together as a body of believers to be his instruments of grace so that during our times of trouble, we have brothers and sisters. I'm going to go back and reread that same passage I just read, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So, listen to this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's the key. We need to know each other. We need the church. We need to share our experiences. And we need to see how Christ is working in our lives. As you've heard it said many times, we need to be preaching the gospel to one another during difficulties. We need to see that Jesus is not working in isolation. He's working in all of us. All of us. You, me, all of us. We need each other's help. When Anna was born, our brothers and sisters in Christ rallied behind us. And to this day, I don't know how we would have made it save for the church and how they reached out to us. And I'll never forget it. In order to serve you at Summit Crossing, Summit Crossing needs to know you. And the way we get to know you primarily is through our missional communities. It's where we live life with one another. It's where we share with one another, talk with one another. We know each other's struggles and that when we have tribulation or crisis, we can serve. Third and final point on how trials and sufferings increase our faith. And this is really what this passage is all about. They teach us that life, this life, this life in the flesh is only a journey. It's not the destination. And that one day we will receive the crown of life. In verses 10 and 11, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, each one of us, every one of us, are going to face death. And what I have witnessed is that when a Christian is dying, that the presence of Jesus becomes very real. They realize that they're about to conquer and receive the crown of life. I got a call one day. Uh, there was a, a lady in our church, a mother of five, that had just been told that she had cancer and that she had weeks to live. So as I'm driving over to the hospital, I'm praying to God, just please give me words to say. Let me be a comfort to her. And I'm walking into her room, and I open the door, and I have nothing. I have nothing. And then Julie looks at me, 
and her eyes are beaming. And she says, Greg, I'm going to be with Jesus. And I just, I just lost it. I broke down and I cried and I couldn't stop. And this woman who was told that she was about to die started comforting me. Guys, this is all real. It's all real. Jesus is there when we need him. I've seen it. I've seen it. In these four verses that we've gone over today, what really stands out to me are two declarations and one promise. You are rich. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death and the great promise that we will receive the crown of life. You are rich because you have Jesus Christ. The one who conquers is one who dies in the faith. But what is this crown of life? Is it a reward? Yeah, it's a reward. Well, who gets it? We do. Christians do. So, what is the crown of life? And I think you know what it is. It's eternal life. It's a life free of sin. It's a life free of pain. A life free of suffering. It's a life that we will live forever in Jesus' presence, worshiping him. There's a, a passage that as I get older, it starts making more and more sense to me. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's actually a couple of verses in here. And if you'll just pardon me for one second, I do need to get my glasses. 2 Corinthians, if you have a Bible to open up there. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. So what do we do with this? Well, we respond to, we respond to Christ in prayer. And I have three prayer directives today. What we're going to do is we're going to go over this, and after I read through these, we'll spend a couple of minutes in prayer. One, let's thank God for how he has empowered men and women throughout history to overcome persecution and suffering. Pray for boldness for our brothers and sisters across the world that, we are, that are undergoing persecution today. Boldness. And third, pray for Summit Crossing that we would, be the, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear those who are suffering and that we would be an instrument of God's grace to Limestone County and to the nations. Let's pray.